Good morning. Uh, today I'd like us to ask ourselves a question. The question is, am I walking with God or am I hiding from God? The opening chapters of the Bible tell us many foundational truths about God, about creation, and about the human condition. And in chapter 3, after sin enters into the previously perfect Garden of Eden, and the story of humanity has changed forever, we read that God comes walking in the garden, looking for his buddy Adam, as seems to be his habit. But guilty Adam, the progenitor and archetype of all humanity, is hiding from God. And I want to suggest this morning that perhaps people have been hiding from God ever since. In our recent studies in Exodus, before the summer break, we saw that Israel was called to be a covenant people which would display the likeness of God, the imago Dei, as they like to call it, to the world. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, just before God makes covenant with them, he reveals his purpose in it. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, in those Exodus talks and several of the subsequent ones, we've argued that the same calling now lies at the root of all we are supposed to be as Christians. God's treasured possession, not separated from, but among all the nations. Why? Because all the earth is God's, and he wants it back. We're to be a kingdom ruled by God as our only king, of priests, those who represent the world to God and him to the world. And also a holy nation, obviously set apart for God, different from the rest. Now again and again, the scriptures remind us that we often have to oppose the cultural forces that surround us in order to be a holy people. Now, I know I go on and on about this like a crack record, but one of the main pressures that we need to stand against in our own day is that of individualism. We live in a society that preaches community but produces something else. It produces adults who stay indoors of an evening, teenagers who rarely come out of their rooms, and in Scotland, a nation where, according to a recent major survey, loneliness ranks right up there with obesity and addiction as uh, one of the three main causes of, of disease, one, one of the three main risks to health. And the church, which we might and should expect to be uh, different, is far from immune from the same disease. Unless we're very careful, it can be all too easy to adopt the spirit of the age and slip into interpreting, interpreting scripture in an individual kind of way, asking what does this passage mean for me, when we should be asking what does this passage mean for us. And it can be a surprisingly short step from that way of thinking to dismissing church altogether as an inconvenient encumbrance on our lives rather than what it is, God's plan for our flourishing and our fruitfulness. One of the few strengths, it seems to me, of the old version, uh, old language versions of the Bible, like the King James, is that they differentiate between thou and ye, the singular and the plural forms of you in older English. And for what it's worth, ye might be interested to know, 
ye outnumbers thou by almost two to one in the New Testament. That's not obvious in the modern versions, is it? Word counts are, of course, a, a sort of blunt tool, but a difference on that scale, that two to one, clearly makes the point that plural yous are more important in the New Testament than singular ones. Yet in contemporary Christian thinking, I'd argue it often looks to be the other way around. And that, I think, is very damaging to our growth in the Lord, to our understanding of his ways, and perhaps especially to our witness to those outside the church in the wider world. See previous talk, 4Gs of the Evangelism. The podcast should be available. Our culture is crying out for examples of community that works. Community that provides for the weak as well as for the strong. Community that welcomes the outsider rather than um, causing differentiations and keeping them out. Community that heals more than it hurts. And that is what we as the people of God are and have always been supposed to be. Against that backdrop, I'd like us to look this morning at Micah uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And while you're looking that up on your telephones, please uh, just let me give a few words of introduction. The book of Micah consists of a series of separate prophetic statements, probably given on different occasions over a long period of time, but in each one the message is broadly the same. God speaks through the prophet to condemn Israel and Judah for idolatry on the one hand and for injustice on the other, idolatry and injustice. And this overarching emphasis, this calling God's people back to worship him and to treat their fellow man right, is strongly reminiscent, isn't it, of of what Jesus calls the great commandment, to love God and love our neighbor. And their failure to do this, says Micah, is putting them in danger of God's judgment for breaking his covenant. And I think it's worth pausing there for a moment to consider the implications of that idea for us today, both as a church, the people of God, and as a nation. Because like it or not, this is a theme in the Bible that simply refuses to go away. It's impossible to read the biblical prophets without coming to the conclusion that God recognizes and is interested in the future of individual nations to the point of blessing some and judging others. And that being the case, can the church in Scotland, or anywhere else for that matter, really afford to retreat to the margins of society and cease to speak up? Or worse still, to divorce itself altogether from the fortunes of the nation we live in? And it's worth noticing that in the Bible, time and again, we see God bringing judgment on his whole people if the majority fall away from him. The godly people, like Daniel and company, went into slavery along with the wicked. God's judgment fell on the whole people, not on the individual. That being so, is it wise, is it even possible to divorce our own individual fortunes from that of the church as a whole, the church nationally, the church locally, and right down to our own individual church and churches? Is it not more the case that, as St. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member, one person, suffers, then all members, the whole body, suffer with it? If one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. At a national level, it seems to me infantile to say things like, uh, that hurricane struck because of gay marriage. But if we take into account the whole counsel of Scripture, as we must, it would be equally silly to think that nations can do whatever they like 
and still remain under God's protection. And at a church level, while it's true that my individual spiritual health or or yours is our own responsibility, it also affects others. The sins that Israel committed were, were committed by individuals, but they infected and affected the whole nation. In the end, as chapter 7 of Micah will tell us, which we're not going to get to today, God will have his way, he will have a holy nation, he will have a kingdom of priests. The question is, to put it crudely, as uh, as an arresting officer in the Metropolitan Police, often used to say to a, a prospective prisoner, do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? Because it's going to get done. It's up to you. Our passage takes the form of a legal trial between the people and their God. And of course, it warmly commends to them the easy way. Here, verse 1, what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The passage falls into four parts. Firstly, the the call, as it were, to the courtroom, verses 1 and 2. Second, God opening the case for the prosecution, verses 3 to 5. Thirdly, the people's answer, verses 6 and 7. And finally, in verse 8, before the actual indictment begins, Micah brings a correctional statement of the truth of the matter. Let's just quickly deal with those one by one. Firstly, the call to the courtroom. It's not uncommon in Scripture for God to invite people to reason out their case with him. Ever since Adam and Eve hid from him in the Garden of Eden, he's had this trouble with humanity, that when we feel troubled, especially when we know we've done wrong, we tend to hide from him rather than come to him and get sorted out. In Genesis 3, God has to ask sinful Adam, where are you? And it gets no better because in the next chapter, he has to ask Adam's murderous son, Cain, where is your brother? When things go wrong, God comes looking for us, not to beat us up, but to work things out. 
One key example of this comes in Job, chapter 36, when God suddenly answers his suffering servant out of the whirlwind. He says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you answer me. In Isaiah 1, he says to Judah and Jerusalem, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are red as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Or Isaiah 41, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments. Let's do this thing. There's an astonishing frankness about God. Ignorant people depict the God of the Old Testament, as they like to call him, as distant, angry, and unreasonable. But that's not the God we see if we actually read the Old Testament. That's just what the accuser, the devil, the father of lies, Satan, calls him and says about him. And he's been at that game ever since the Garden of Eden, right up until the present day. So we shouldn't be that surprised. The actual God of the Old Testament, who's surprisingly like the God of the New Testament, funnily enough, is forever seeking reconciliation and relationship and understanding. Far from discouraging discussion, he openly invites it. After all, we're not going to confess to him anything he hasn't known about already. We're not going to come up with some problem that he hasn't thought about. He alone can answer our deepest questions, needs, longings, and would love to do so. Yet, we hide from him. Verse 1 calls us to get up and plead our case rather than hiding away. To do so openly before a creation that stands as witness to what has really happened. To who is really right and to what is really wrong. And at the same time, verse 2 calls those same mountains to witness God's indictment against us. And, it, and if we find it sort of does our heads in to think of Almighty God stepping down to argue a case with us as if we were equals then I think perhaps it should. But that is what he does. And it is ultimately what he did in the incarnation of his son Jesus as a man. The devil would tell us that God is arbitrary, that he condemns out of hand people who don't even know that they've done wrong. The truth, says Micah, is the exact opposite. The wonder of verse 2 is not that he has an indictment against us, but that he doesn't simply uh, announce his judgment and deal with us straight away, as he'd be perfectly entitled to do. He doesn't do that. Instead, he stands, as it were, at the gate of the courthouse, calling us to come and argue it out. Let's get face to face. Yet, we hide from him. Part 2, God opens his case against the people. Now, those who subscribe to what we call angry God theory might be surprised at the terms in which God introduces his case here. The actual indictment against Israel, that dismal litany of all their breaches of covenant, doesn't come until verses 9 and following, which lies outside the scope of our reading today. Here, instead of accusing them in verse 3, we find God first pleading with them to reason through what has obviously been their frequent complaint against him. As we've often said in other talks, when God asks man a question, he's not seeking information. The questions God asks, like the questions you often find Jesus asking in the Gospels, are more like the Socratic method of of teaching, where the, the, the teacher asks probing questions of the student so that the student's thinking about a subject will develop and clarify. Here, 
And I think God is evidently repeating to them a complaint he's often heard. He asks them to think through what it is they find so incredibly irksome about relating to him. Oh, my people, what have, you, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Well, that doesn't sound angry, God, does it? It's all reason and reconciliation. It's more like a mother trying to reason with a wayward child. And what follows in verses 4 and 5 is very much in the same spirit, a reminder of their history, set out before the ancient hills that witnessed so much of it. Well, we've been talking a lot recently in these talks of the importance of developing a, an exodus mindset. And if you remember Kirsty's talk way back in March, this sort of history lesson that comes here won't come as any surprise. It is part of who we are as God's people, constantly to remember and remind each other of all the good things he's done for us. From the beginning, it's always been this way. We sin, we get hurt, we hide from God, and the further we get from him, the more we forget how good he has always been to us. Again and again, the scripture, in scripture, God reasons with his people in this way, appealing to our history together with him. A history that people ought to know inside out. And because God is unchanging, it seems a fair assumption that he'd still want to do exactly the same with us today when we're feeling out of sorts with him. Here we have to take a deliberately countercultural stance. The world blames God, very often a God they don't even believe in, for everything that's wrong in the world. But we know the fault lies with mankind's sin, not with God. We know from experience that God is good all the time. It's just that when we are hurting, we do need to be reminded of it. That is why the devil will stop at nothing to split us off from those who remind us of God's goodness, to surround us instead with people who will tell us the opposite. And this is why in the Kingdom Vineyard we hold regular Thanksgiving services, where we just testify to some of the good things that God's been doing among us. Verse 4 goes straight to the Exodus story. Where else can it go? Controlling narrative of the Bible. God's deliverance of his people from slavery. It names the three great heroes of that age, which includes a woman, by the way. Three shining examples of how life should be lived. And these three heroes didn't just turn up. God says they were his gift to them. As ever, God's plan was a man or a woman. Verse 5 refers to a powerful prophet, Balaam, and his repeated refusal to curse Israel blessing them instead, so that their enemy Balak was afraid to attack them. Then it goes on to mention briefly that the journey from Shittim to Gilgal, part of the story that encompasses three equally miraculous events, marvellous events, the defeat of a superior force in Midian, the crossing of the River Jordan, and the fall of Jericho. And all that history is crammed into verse 5, sandwiched between a call to remember and the reason they should remember, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Yet, we hide from him. And even as we hide, we begin to forget. Part three, the people open their defense. Almost as if they're interrupting God in verse six, the people answer, with what shall I come before the Lord? Dear Liza, dear Liza. And if they interrupt, it's because they're not listening. The people who hide from God and forget all the wonderful things he's done for them are certainly not in touch enough to be listening to God. 
their faith has become mechanical, not relational, as verses 6 and 7 clearly show. It's all become about that fundamentally pagan idea of what sacrifice do I have to make in order to get what I want? God calls us instead to argue things out with him, a progress that will inevitably end in tears of repentance for us and a big hug with him. But the people who hide and forget want to keep their religion an arm's length transaction. Don't come too close. So verse 6 is all about, don't talk to me about relationship, don't talk to me about love. If I give a good enough sacrifice, God will surely bless me. And that's bad enough, going through the motions of covenant with God for what's in it for me. But verse 7 is worse still, because this is the inevitable conclusion once we forget God's grace and begin to pretend that we can somehow deserve his favor. To make us even with God, would a thousand grams be enough? Or rivers of oil? Or or even the sacrifice of my own children? Well, of course not. But being even with God was never the point. The first crucial sin in the whole Bible, back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, was precisely that, trying to be even with God. No, the relationship between God and human, like every parent-child relationship, is not supposed to be equal. How can it be when one party knows so much more than the other and has so much more responsibility than the other? The grudging mechanical sacrifices of the rebellious Jew are as useless as the grudging mechanical church attendance of the rebellious Christian. Neither will produce repentance and neither can produce relationship with God. Now, the people who make the despairing statement in verses 6 and 7 find God wearisome because they're looking at the problem from entirely the wrong perspective. They're asking what's wrong with God. They should be asking what's wrong with us. And looking, as it were, through the wrong end of the telescope, it's not surprising that they see him as a distant perfectionist rather than the loving nearby father that he is. In fact, closeness, intimacy with God is the key as verse 8 is about to tell us. So four, Micah's dismissal of the people's argument. Following this plea for reconciliation from verse 9 onwards, chapter 6 is going to outline God's full case against his people, and it makes pretty grim reading. Yet, the following chapter, chapter 7, if we had time to read it, would give us a wonderful depiction of repentance and a final statement of hope. But before any of that comes verse 8, where we find a turning point, an opportunity for repentance, as the voice of the prophet intervenes to correct the foolishness of the previous argument. And here he uses mild but powerful language. He says, he has told you, O man. You can just sense he wants to say, look, you morons. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? It's a deceptively short statement, almost like a soundbite of what God actually requires. In devotional terms, we could see this as an inward journey, moving from our outward actions through to the direction of our hearts, through to intimacy with God at the end. Do justice, love Kindness, walk humbly with your God. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? 
as long as we don't examine ourselves too closely. But when we do, are we really as squeaky clean as we thought at first? In terms of justice, do we ensure that we pay all our taxes? Because the culture around us finds room for a little bit of cash in hand, a bit of constructive accounting, a bit of what the taxman doesn't know won't hurt him. Are we doing justice in the workplace? Because the surrounding culture expects a little bit of leeway with the office stationery cupboard, the work phone bill, the expenses claim sheet, not to mention hours worked as opposed to hours at work. And employers often fall just as short regarding paying conditions. There's a thing they call market forces, which Jesus calls mammon, by the way, which encourages people to pay the very minimum they can get away with. In our relationships, are we just or have we been infected by the world's tribalism? Are our speech and thoughts about others fair? Or do we sometimes allow ourselves a bit of leeway? But um, a bit more leeway than we allow anyone else. In arguments, do we give the other side a fair hearing? Or is winning all that counts? On a broader scale, are we people who intervene to prevent injustice? Or is that just the way of the world? At election time, do we vote with self-interest or for justice? Is our thinking free of prejudice? I'm not just talking about the biggies, things like uh, sexuality or, or race. Do we think less of people because they dress differently or come from different backgrounds or, or like a certain kind of music or espouse a certain politics or churchmanship? Do I ever find myself lumping people together in some arbitrary way, and calling them silly in my head. Yup. Doing justice is not as easy as it at first seems. It's simple, but it's not easy. In terms of loving kindness, which many versions translate mercy, loving mercy, at first glance that seems obvious too. Doesn't everyone love mercy and kindness? Well, I do when I'm on the receiving end, Governor. But how much do we love mercy when someone has really annoyed us or really hurt us? When we're not receiving any kindness or mercy from them? And even when it's nothing to do with me, when I'm not the victim, when someone really deserves judgment, not mercy, how much do I appreciate God's unfailing kindness towards that person? It seems we always fall short here. But if we're growing in Christ, we'll find ourselves increasingly soft-hearted. At least loving kindness and mercy, at least aspiring to them, at least growing in them as a direction of the heart. And what about the third part of verse 8, walking humbly with our God? Once again, it seems at first glance as if we all do that, at least on Sunday mornings. Carol spoke a few weeks back about practicing the presence of God. In those terms, how many hours of the average week are we consciously spending in God's presence? Are we walking with him throughout the day? Or maybe just topping and tailing the day with a little bit of, of God time, not sparing a thought for him in between? Well, I know that some of us struggle to even do that. When we know something is wrong, but decide to do it anyway, or when we know we have an unsubmitted area in our life, but we refuse to address it. Are we walking humbly with our God? Or are we, like Israel of old, hiding from him and in danger of forgetting him? 
Well, all that sounds a bit of a downer, doesn't it? But it's not really, because walking humbly with our God surely starts by admitting that we aren't all we should be and placing our faith in the fact that he really is everything he should be. And as we just read, even if we're constantly forgetting and hiding from him, he still calls and calls us back to relationship with him. Even if we're bearing a grudge against him, and let's not pretend we don't, he still calls us to come and talk it through with him. It's not going to be an argument we'll win, but if we're prepared to humble ourselves, as we must if we're to walk with him, then we won't mind losing an argument. We'll just be delighted to be walking with him again. He's calling to us. God is calling to us today and every day. Today, like every day, can be a turning point, a point of repentance. And this moment, too, is an opportunity for repentance and walking humbly with your God and mine. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Father, we thank you that um, that repentance isn't just a, a one-off act, though, though it is that, that it's also a, a life that we live, that once we've turned to you, we have to keep, keep on uh, adjusting our direction so that we make sure we're getting closer to you. And we thank you for these wonderful words of your prophet, Micah, Let me just examine our lives for a moment in terms of justice, in terms of loving mercy and kindness, and in terms of walking humbly with you. Let me say that that's the kind of people we want to be. So we resolutely turn our hearts toward that aim now. And as we minister to each other in a moment, let's, let us receive from you grace from the Holy Spirit to enable us to take that direction and walk it with you. Amen.